You know, the, uh, the Roman orator uh, Cicero said, we are all motivated by a keen desire for praise, uh, including those of us who are pastors. So, uh, but with that in mind, uh, you know, think about this for a minute. All of us want to be recognized for our accomplishments. You know, we want credit for the work that we've done. If you've ever been in a situation where you've worked on a team project and you have done 90, 95% of the work, and somebody else gets all the credit. You know how frustrating that can be because we want to be recognized for the things that we've done. We want a job title and a salary uh, that reflect our value to our employer. We want uh, people to like our posts on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we want our neighbors to be impressed with our houses and our cars. We want audiences to applaud when we sing. We want people to come when we show our paintings in the gallery. We want people to buy our photographs. We want people to listen to our songs. We want our kids to go to the best colleges and get uh, significant jobs so that when we're at the, the neighborhood party and people ask us what our kids are doing, we can be proud of them and we can feel good about ourselves and we can live vicariously through our children in that way. We want our friends to come to us when they're having difficulties, not too much difficulty, but just enough so that they come to us and ask for advice. What should I do in this situation? And we love it when they come and they ask our opinion on something that's important to them because it makes us feel good about ourselves. We want people to think well of us. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying the compliments that we receive. There's nothing inherently wrong for when, when we're grateful for the recognition that we receive when we have worked hard at something, we've accomplished it, and people notice. And it's okay to enjoy that. But it's also a very, very dangerous situation because that good feeling that enjoyment can end up fueling an addiction. It can end up becoming an obsession. When we need the praise, when we have to have the recognition, when we're motivated by an insatiable desire for human approval, that's when we're going to get ourselves into trouble. And we live in a very dangerous area in this part of the country, in this respect. Because we live with CEOs, some here may be, of multinational corporations. We live with people, and some of us may be, who are incredibly successful academically. Either we or our kids go to really amazing schools. We've got multiple degrees. We're good at sports. The, 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 the schools around here, the teams are routinely winning championships. We've got some amazing artists, some unbelievably talented singers, some photographers who can just shoot beautiful photographs. We've got engineers who have designed some amazing structures and some amazing machines. We've got people who are among the best in the world at programming computers. We've got some of the greatest financial minds in the world. And these things are all true of us. We've got people who hold down uh, one or two jobs, volunteer for uh, you know, uh, community organizations, and they're raising two, three, four kids by themselves. 
And we can go on and on and on about our various competencies and our various abilities and our various accomplishments. And it's okay for us to enjoy them, but we've got to be careful that they don't go to our heads. And we've got to be careful that we don't become addicted to that praise and obsessed with that applause. And I've often wondered if it wouldn't be good if whenever a child is born, right there in big bold letters on the kid's birth certificate, it says, warning, the Surgeon General has, has decided that excessive applause is hazardous to your health. Because it's hazardous to mine, I know it's hazardous to yours, and we've got to watch out for that. And the passage that I want us to look at this morning shows us what happens when a group of people end up being so obsessed with their own success, with their own reputation, with their own name, that they end up turning their backs on God. Take a look with me at Genesis chapter 11. Moses writes, he says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and they used tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible with them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from over the face of the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Shinar is in the region of the world that we know as Mesopotamia. And throughout the Bible, it's more commonly called Babylonia. And today it's the site, it's where uh, Iraq, the nation of Iraq and the city of Babylon are located today. And the Babylonians in that day and age were Israel's enemies. And what's happening here is Moses, who is one of the leaders of Israel, Moses is writing a polemic against the Babylonians in this particular case. And over and over and again, there's sarcasm, there's satire, there's word plays that he uses to kind of get his digs in at the Babylonians. And it begins in verse two. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. And at first glance, this seems kind of innocuous. They're going along and they find a good place to, to pitch their tents and it's, a, it's a, a nice wide open plain. And so they decide to settle there and they want to build a city there in Shinar. And it seems like that's okay but the problem is that it goes directly against one of, the the, one of the commands that God had given to the people. After God created Adam and Eve, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Genesis chapter one, God says, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to rule over it. I want you to care for it. I want you to be my representatives 
to the rest of creation. I am entrusting you, humanity, with the care of my creation. Ruling over it doesn't mean doing it in a harsh way. It means doing it in a loving way in God's place for God's purposes. And he actually repeats this command in Genesis chapter 9. And yet the people say, no, we're going to stay here. And see, the problem is how can they, from one location, care for the entire earth? They can't do it. And so God is saying, no, rather than settling in one spot, I want you spread out over the whole earth. And then in the next verse, Moses gets a little dig in them about the, the building materials that they were using. Take a look at verse three. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and they used tar for mortar. If you're an Israelite, you're gonna use stone when you build. If you're Babylonian, you're just using these cheap bricks. If you're an Israelite, you're gonna use clay-based mortar because it's strong. The Babylonians, that you just use this wimpy tar that's going to ooze and it's just, it's not going to be as strong. What Moses is essentially saying is, yeah, they're impressed with this city that they're building and they're impressed with this tower that they're building, but, you know, they, they got this, this, the building materials from the scrapyard compared to the kind of building materials that we use. They're so impressed with what they're doing, why don't they use good building materials? He goes on and he says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And every city in ancient Babylonia had one of these towers. They were called a ziggurat. And a, a ziggurat was a kind of a stepped up tower that would have levels that got progressively smaller as it went up. And this particular tower there in, in Babylon had six or seven different levels. And the idea was that this was supposed to be a connection between heaven and earth. And the gods would live at the top of the tower and the people would live down below. And when the people wanted to go meet with God, when they wanted to worship God, they'd climb their way up the tower, they'd find God at the top of the tower and they would worship him. And this particular ziggurat we, we found from archeological expeditions, we found that this particular ziggurat's about 300 feet high. And we look at that, we say, yeah, it's not so high. You know, the, what's the Freedom Tower is 1,776 feet high. Obviously, it makes, a, makes perfect sense for, for the United States. Tallest building in North America, not the tallest building in the world. At this time, 300 feet is unbelievably high. It's probably the biggest structure that had ever been built at that time. And these people are unbelievably impressed with their own ingenuity, with their own accomplishments, and it becomes a rallying point for them. And the second half of verse four tells us what's really going on behind the building of this. It says, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We're proud of the Freedom Tower. Other people are proud of the towers in their countries. The Babylonians were proud of their tower. And for them, it became a rallying point. It became a symbol of their unity. It drew people together. It became a monument to what human beings can accomplish when they put themselves together, when they put their minds together and they pool their talents Look at what we can accomplish, this unbelievably tall tower. And this tower was supposed to be so high that God himself would live at the top of it. 
But take a look at what happens in verse 5, which is smack dab in the middle of the narrative. It's the turning point of the whole thing. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. The Lord had to come down to see it because it was so puny. It was so short compared to him. Now, at first glance, you might say, well, no, it just means that God was you know, unable to see it. He's a weak, he's not a powerful God. That's not the picture that we have of God in the book of Genesis. He's powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter one. He's powerful enough to do all sorts of things all the way up here through Genesis chapter 11. And Moses is writing this as a polemic, so he's not saying that God is incapable of seeing it due to his inability. He's, he's mocking the Babylonians and saying, you think this tower, which is the biggest structure that's ever been built in the history of the world, you're so impressed with this. It's so short that God has to come down to look at it. You think it's big, Ultimately, it's puny. You think it's a monument to your greatness. Instead, it just shows how small and how insignificant you are when compared with the God of the universe. And notice God's reaction in verse 6. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible with them. And again, when you read this, it looks like maybe God's a little bit of a, uh, afraid of what's going on. Well, hey, if they can build this 300-foot tower, then you know maybe next year they'll be able to build something 600 feet or 1,000 feet or a, a mile or two or three miles, and then pretty soon they're going to actually make their way up to me, and I don't know what's going to happen when this whole army of human beings comes and invades heaven and what's going to happen. No, again, that's not the point that's going on. God is not afraid for himself. He's not concerned that their reputation is going to be greater than his reputation. They're not concerned that they're somehow going to be able to overthrow him. God is not concerned for himself. He's concerned for the people. Because the problem is, if they keep going and doing this, if they're able to build this incredible city and this incredible tower as they get together, what's going to happen next? And what could happen next is that they could fall prey to what we might call the illusion of self-sufficiency, the idea that we, if we put our minds to it, we can do anything we want, that we are self-sufficient, that we are independent, that we are autonomous, that whatever we set out to do, we can do. It's the American dream on steroids. Work hard and you'll get ahead. If you put your mind to it, you can succeed and you can do anything you want to do. And in small doses, that can be a, a powerful motivator and a helpful encouragement. But if we actually believe that we are capable of living independently of the creator of the universe, that we are in some sense our own little gods, that we are omnipotent and can do whatever it is that we want to do, we are going to be sorely disappointed. And so God is concerned for the people whom he created because they are beginning to get this false idea that they can live their lives apart from them. And he doesn't want that to happen because if God is the source of life, if God is the source of all that is good, and if we separate ourselves from the source of life and we separate ourselves from goodness, what's left for us? We separate ourselves from the source of life and what's left is death. 
We separate ourselves from the source of goodness, and what's left is evil. And God does not want that for the people. And that's why he's so concerned about what they're doing. Adam and Eve made that mistake in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. God said, don't eat from that one particular tree. And they look at it and they say, you know what? It looks pretty good to me. I think I'm going to eat from it. And they disobeyed God. They disobeyed a specific command that was meant for their protection and for their good and for their benefit. And they reaped the consequences. And the minute they ate it, they regretted it. And then they regretted it for the rest of their lives. And we're bearing the consequences ever since. They trusted themselves rather than God. They wanted to be like him in a way that he had never intended for them to be. And as a result, they got themselves into trouble and it's affected us. And the people in the plain of Shinar were doing the exact same thing that the people in the garden of Eden had done. They were saying, we're gonna make a name for ourselves. We are gonna make ourselves great, even if it means doing what God told us not to do. And God says, no, I don't want you to do it because it's not the best thing for you. So God took some pretty drastic action. He said, come, let's go down. Let's confuse their language so they won't understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. They no longer spoke the same language so they couldn't understand each other. They're living all over the world and there were no airplanes to be able to travel back and forth. So they were not able to finish building that city. And that's why verse nine, it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. City is called Babel or it's called Babylon. And from the perspective of the Babylonians, that word Babel meant gate of God. But from the perspective of the Israelites, the word Babel meant confusion. And our word Babel doesn't actually come from that word there, although it'd be really cool if it did. For whatever reason, it doesn't. But it means essentially the same thing. It means nonsense. It means confusion. It means lack of, that the language is completely unintelligible. And that's what it sounded like to each other. And Moses is basically saying, you are so impressed with your city, blah, 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 blah. It's just a bunch of noise and it's just a bunch of confusion. And so Moses is mocking them as he writes this. A number of years ago, Ann and I uh, lived in Texas. And if you've ever uh, lived in Texas, you know that their slogan is, it's a whole nother country. And it actually is. It's really different there. I loved living there for those five years. I would have loved if my beloved Dallas Cowboys, of whom I was proud, uh, had been able to play, but I think they won like one game in the entire five, a slight exaggeration, but they were lousy then, and so I couldn't be proud of my Cowboys, even though I enjoyed watching them, you know, on TV or, or whatever it is. Anyway, we're living in Texas. It's really different for, you know, for a kid who grew up in New England and, and, and New Jersey. We're down there in Texas, and there's all sorts of different and new and interesting things that we see, and, and Ann and I love to take a walk around the, the apartment complex where we lived. We do that every day in the evening. One woman came out one day and said, you know, you guys are so reliable, I set my clock by you whenever you come by, you know, my apartment complex. Those were just really great years for our marriage. By the way, just a quick aside, if you want to do something great for your marriage, just take long walks with your spouse. Just hang out, talk, go over the day. Don't try to solve all the problems of the world. Just enjoy being one another. And, and I, I look back fondly on those days and we still get to take some walks now. Anyway, one day, 
Ann and I are walking around our, our apartment complex shortly after we had gotten there, and we saw this little boy playing in what looked to be like a, just a small pile of dirt. And we're, you know, we're watching him as we're walking, and all of a sudden, this woman, who turns out to be his mom, his mom comes running out of nowhere, screaming at him. She picks him up by the shirt, literally slams him down to the ground, and starts slapping him all over. And we're like, yeah, this is a whole nother country. What's the day? Just beat their kids in public? What is going on? So we stop walking and we start running to go over here and figure out what in the world is going on with this woman and her child. And as we approach, we see that the, the little pile of dirt isn't a pile of dirt. It's a mound of fire ants. And her son had been playing with fire ants. And when she saw that, she made a beeline for him and she did all she could to pull him away and she's slapping not to hurt him but to get those ants off of him and if you've ever been stung by a fire ant or a bee unbelievably painful and he's got hundreds of them and if he had been allergic to them fortunately he wasn't but if he had been allergic he could have died from those stings so what was his mother doing she wasn't trying to beat her child she wasn't trying to be mean and nasty to him she was trying to love him. It was a severe kind of a love. We could call it a severe mercy, but it's there, you know? And there wasn't much else. She, she didn't have a fire hose that she could hit him with, you know? So, so, she, so she did that, and that's what she was doing. You know, from a distance, when God confused the language of the people and scattered them all over the earth, it looks like he was beaten up on him just the way it looked like us at first, the, the, what that mother was doing her, to her child. But God was showing them a severe mercy because God knew humanity. And he knew that if he came down and he said, look, I told you once, please fill the earth and take care of it. And I told you a second time, please fill the earth and take care of it. Maybe the third time will be a charm and you'll, you'll do what I'm asking you to do. And they're not gonna do it. And if he came down and he said, fine, I'm knocking down your tower, I'm, you know, nuking your city, they just would have moved somewhere else and built another city with another tower because you know what? They were so proud, just like we are. They were so proud, they were so arrogant, they were so self-centered that they wanted to make a name for themselves, even if it meant that they weren't going to do what God was doing. They're effectively worshiping themselves and their own abilities and their own supposed greatness rather than worshiping the one who gave them those abilities and who gave them those talents and who gave them whatever greatness they might have. And so God says, you know, the only permanent solution is if I scatter you and confuse your language so that you can no longer work together. And that's pretty severe and it seems pretty harsh, but it's actually quite merciful because God was reminding them that they were not self-sufficient. He was showing them that they were not capable of doing whatever they wanted to do, that they weren't as great as they thought they were. He was reminding them that they needed him. And that's merciful because if we are dependent on God and we try to live independently of him, then we're going to find ourselves in an impossible situation because God did not create us to be self-sufficient, independent, 
autonomous human beings. And when we are separated from him, we will ultimately die, both physically and especially spiritually. And God knows that the best thing for us is to depend on him, to look to him to meet our needs, to trust him to provide for us and to find our security and our significance in our relationship with him. And so, yeah, it was severe, but it was absolutely merciful because the consequence of allowing them to continue on the path they were going was so great that this was the best way to get them turned away from that path. And sometimes God reminds us in painful ways of our need for him and of our lack of self-sufficiency. But there are other times when bad things happen to us. Our tower falls down. The project that we were building fails. Somebody gets sick. Something happens. Not every time that a bad thing happens is it God reminding us of our lack of self-sufficiency. There are many, many reasons why bad things happen in the world today. But, but if every time we were disappointed, if every time we fail to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish, if every time we run into some roadblock, some difficulty, some pain, some tragedy, if every time we stopped and we said, I don't know exactly why this is happening, but I know that I have a merciful, loving kind, gracious God, and I'm going to use this as a reminder that I am not self-sufficient, that I am not independent, that I am not autonomous, and that I do need my God, my merciful God. If we were to take every opportunity that comes our way to remind ourselves of that truth, we would be in a whole lot better shape than if we rebel against it and we fight against it and we begin to think, well, maybe God doesn't love me or maybe God is not merciful. The people in Genesis chapter 11, they wanted to make a name for themselves and they tried to do it uh, apart from God. And so he stopped them with this very, very severe mercy. And what's interesting to see is Moses in the very next chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, writes the story of another man who actually came from the same part of the world as the people who were there on the plain of Shinar. And he says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household, go to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will bless you. God said to Abram, don't do what your ancestors did. Don't just stay there in the plain of Shinar. Go from your home to the place that I'm going to show you. Don't try to make a name for yourself. I'm going to take care of that. You want to have a great name? Let me make your great name. And then I'm going to bless the whole world, including all those people whom I scattered. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Having a great name 
is not wrong, but it has to be God's doing and not ours. And there's another person who had a great name. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after Abram lived on the earth, another person left his home, left his comfort, left his father, came to the earth, humbled himself, sacrificed himself, and as a result of that, the whole world has been blessed through him. And God made the name of Jesus even greater than the name of Abram. And the Apostle Paul writes about him, he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used at his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did exactly what the Babylonians should have done. He left his home. He obeyed the command of God. He humbled himself. He fulfilled the mission that he had been given. He sacrificed himself so that those who had rebelled against God, and that includes all of us, he sacrificed himself so that we could live. And so God made his name great. And that's why we worship him. That's why we honor him. That's why we follow him. That's why we serve him. That's why we glorify him. That's why we look to him to meet our needs. That's why we find our life in him and our significance in him, not in the things that we do or the things that we accomplish, as great as they may seem to be. But the greatest thing that can be said of us is we are children of the living God. We are followers of the one who has the greatest name on earth. And yet, he left his home to come and live and suffer and die so that we could one day go to be with him in his home forever where he is in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's where our ultimate significance and meaning can come from. We are not self-sufficient. We are not independent. We are not autonomous. No matter how competent we are, we cannot live our lives apart from God. Yeah, we may be pretty good at various things. We may have some great gifts and talents and abilities, and may, we may have worked very, very hard to develop them. Scholars say it takes 10,000 hours to, to become really competent and accomplished at a task. Great. Where does the strength to do those 10,000 hours come from? Where does the discipline for that? Where does the raw ability, where do the resources come from? It all comes from God. We may think that we're independent of him, but we are absolutely not. 
And the sooner we recognize that, the better off we are. But even when we're arrogant enough to try to build a tower, to reach to the heavens, to make a name for ourselves, to magnify our reputation, even in spite of the fact that God says, don't do that. Even when we do that, God is still merciful because his mercy does not depend on our character and it does not depend on what we do. It depends on his character and it's demonstrated in what Jesus has done. And he reminds us of that because he knows that we absolutely need him. And when we acknowledge that we are small and he is big, when we acknowledge that we are weak and he is strong, when we recognize our need and his provision, when we acknowledge our sin and his mercy, then and only then will we find true life and true significance. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage in Genesis that reminds us, and it's a reminder that we so, so desperately need, that reminds us that even our best efforts, even the greatest things that we think we can do pale in comparison with your greatness, that reminds us uh, of our need for you, that we are not independent, that we're not self-sufficient, that we're not autonomous. And I thank you for that reminder, even when it is, is, is sometimes severe and, and harsh and hard to, to, to take. But Father, I, I thank you that you forgive us, and we do ask for your forgiveness for when we magnify ourselves rather than magnifying you, when we worship ourselves rather than worshiping you. So Father, we thank you for that forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we pray that the more that we experience your grace and your mercy, the more we would have a desire to live for you, to follow you, and to bring you honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name.